Hello, hello. Welcome back to the Business of Fitness podcast with me, Molly Herford. We are part of the Feisty Media crew. I'm so excited that you are here for Financial Health February. This has been just honestly the most fun I've ever had talking about my finances, which as you might have heard in last week's episode with Brenda Smith, is something that normally terrifies the crap out of me. But here we are. We're talking today all about negotiating, whether you are a coach setting your pricing or you're you know, working a more standard corporate nine to five and you're trying to negotiate for a raise, if you're in a small business trying to you know, get more responsibility or get more money, uh, we are talking all about that today. We have a negotiation expert. We have Nita Singh Kashel on, and she is amazing. Honestly, this woman has done so much. She started in electrical engineering, of all things, uh, and worked more in the corporate world before going into her ne- her new business, where she is Miss CEO. She runs stuff for both young women and older women alike, and talks all about how to negotiate for what you're worth, understand your market value, and just understand how to approach a negotiation in a way that really is that win-win concept and not in the way that ends with you doing more work while you get very little more money. Uh, So this is just such a fun conversation. I am so glad that she was able to join us. I think the area of STEM and the world of fitness really do actually go hand in hand when you are talking about you know, all of these negotiations and kind of this more male-dominated space. So I really think that all of the stuff that she's gone through is stuff that a lot of us can really relate to, whether you're working in a bike shop or for one of these bigger bike brands uh, or, you know, really anything in the fitness industry, uh, or you're trying to start out on your own and figure out what you're worth. Uh, We have such a great discussion about market value. And I really recommend after this episode, you just take a few minutes and just journal a little bit, make a to-do list about what it is that you need to look up to figure out exactly what your market value is. So without further ado, Enjoy this episode with Nita Singh Kashal. Welcome to the Business of Fitness podcast, Nita. I'm so excited you're here. This is such a serendipitous kind of situation, and I feel like you just have so much to offer to our listeners. I'm so excited, Thank Molly. You. I'm so excited to connect with your audience, um, but I think we really connected over this idea of just empowering more people with the information of how to advocate for themselves because it is so important now more than ever. So thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, of course. So before we get super into it, I wanted you to give just like a quick bio because I mean, I know you're not from the fitness industry, but you are from a similarly male dominated space. So like if someone understands this world, it's you. So what's your, your elevator bio of how you got Thank you, Molly. Yes, definitely male dominated. I, so my background is I majored um, in electrical engineering. So that's pretty male dominated. Uh, because I was, I graduated um, from a class of about, let's say there was a hundred grads in EE. Uh, it was a handful of us women that were there at the end. So yeah, that was that was sort of my calling early in my career. I was really into STEM, math, sciences. Went to Stanford, majored in EE. Um, was excited primarily because I'm from the Bay Area. I grew up in San Jose, California. There was a lot of tech innovations taking place in the Silicon Valley. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to build, I wanted to contribute. Um, And so that's really what determined my, I think, early career choices. Uh, And then when I started working in industry, as intellectually stimulating as it all was, I was really frustrated um, specifically by the lack of representation of, you know, just having more diverse ta- voices at the table, as you can imagine. Um, also of opportunities that, that were available for young women like myself. I also was just shocked that there was a lot of skills that I never really paid attention to or took the time to learn or it was taught to me that I think would have helped a lot when it came to advancing in my career. And I found that to be the case when I looked at the women who were also struggling and trying to figure out what to do. And so there was just a lot of different types of leadership skills, whether it was negotiating, uh, communicating, networking, um, working together, stretching yourself, learning from failure that I thought could have really helped um, as we navigated these different goals that we had and and just transitions in our life. So... So that's kind of why I do what I do now. 
I love that. And I mean, I think it's just really interesting because you could have kind of kept going in the corporate side of electrical engineering and had, you know, probably a pretty glistening career, honestly, at this point. What made you take the leap into, no, I'm going to go entrepreneurship and actually try to expand the number of women and especially, you know, the improve the diversity in sort of any field, but kind of particularly these more STEM fields? Because that's a scary thing. <laughs> It's like one of those things where you can connect the dots looking backwards than when you're in it. So it wasn't like I was setting out to actually build this company or this organization that focused on, you know, empowering women and girls with these skills. I, I, it was really something that I built because out of necessity, it was really, um, it was done informally as I needed to do it early in my career. So for example, you know, when I realized, hey, I should have negotiated my first paycheck. Um, I need to help other women not make the same mistakes. So I would host informal workshops and talks and just kind of one-on-ones with people who needed that guidance. I started getting called into lead organizations, both internally in the companies that I was working at, as well as externally around these conversations, around these topics of how do we empower ourselves to work smarter, not just harder. Um, and then just seeing the demand and the need of more conversation and training around these subjects really drew me to, okay, how can I make this bigger? Because we really, there is an audience for this. Um, and specifically, I think the audience that I found um, that was really excited about this information that we were teaching and talking about, they connected with the fact that because maybe my background was not in traditional business or um, motivational speaking or um, you know, in the theory of things. I think that's what really connected with people because they just wanted practical advice, right? They did not want to watch another TED talk <laughs> and get inspired for two seconds. They're like, look, I know I need to negotiate Nita, but I'm about to have a panic attack and I'm not going to fix my imposter syndrome. I'm not going to fix my confidence overnight. So what do I say to my boss tomorrow? And like, we would literally put a script in place. So that was that was the part that I was really excited and connecting to. Oh, I love that. I'm always saying my least favorite thing is whenever you have like a business coach who has never run a business or, you know, any coach, like my, my biggest thing is like coaching, coaching coaches about coaching coaches. You know, you can get like 18 layers of that. <laughs> it always drives me crazy because often those people have never actually been in that seat. So I love exactly what you said. You've had that experience. I think that's so important. I've been in the trenches. I've you know, gone through many kind of painful experiences myself. I've had to roll up my sleeves and figure it out. And so that was really the knowledge that I was excited to pass um, to, you know, other women in different phases of their life. And through those conversations, Molly, it was really exciting because they were telling me, as you can imagine, like, I wish I had learned this earlier, or I wish my daughter was a part of these conversations, or, you know, I wish we could like train the younger audiences. And so that was where those were the early days of Miss CEO to like think about how do we adapt this curriculum so that girls as early as middle school and high school and college can really benefit from this training and from this confidence and this mentorship and all the career exploration opportunities that we all wish we had had <laughs> at that stage. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I love it. I just I'm picturing like 15 year olds negotiating their salaries at their first waitressing job. Oh, where where so was that hot. when I was a kid? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I mean, you mentioned one phrase a couple of minutes ago that just kind of made me think the negotiating your first paycheck. And I think this is probably one of the number one, I'm going to call it mistakes. I don't really think it's a mistake. It's a learning experience that people make is not realizing that pretty much everything is a negotiation. But I think especially with that like first time you walk in in your first job interview, you tend to kind of not think of the salary they're showing you or like, this is our rate that we pay as a negotiation. You kind of see it as this black and white. So can you talk about how everything is a negotiation? That's absolutely right, Molly. I think that this idea that a negotiation is a once in a while thing or a once a year thing or it only happens like where there's these defined transitions, like you're changing a job. I think that's the first mistake um, that a lot of women primarily make because the opportunity 
to negotiate and advocate for more is really everywhere. And it's not just compensation, even though that's a huge one, but it's resources, it's opportunities, it's arrangements, it's structures, all of that. And it really requires us to think a little bit outside the box. So I'm a firm believer and, and only through experience, honestly, it's not like I started out this way. I, I think, I think as when we're younger and especially women, we are rewarded for being rule followers. We're, we're rewarded for being heads down and, you know, being quiet and raising our hands and, you know, following all the rules. And so that's what we kind of look for um, in the professional world. We're like, okay, what are the rules? And so if someone tells us, oh, there's no negotiation here, or we don't negotiate here, or this is what it is, we tend to believe it or want to believe it because it takes that it takes that work away and we don't have to worry about all that anxiety and insecurity that we feel around the topic. So I think you nailed it in saying that the opportunity to think about, okay, wait, does it have to be this way? Is there a better arrangement? Not just for me, but for the whole kind of picture um, that I can try to come up with. So I think that's a brilliant insight that I really want to share. Love it. Love it. And you mentioned the anxiety around asking for more money. Let's just kind of briefly, why? Why are we so scared, especially as women, I'm going to say? And I think you and I have talked about this before, where it's it's the balance of like, we're nervous because we might be too successful. We're mer- nervous because we might not be successful enough. We are just, we're screwed. Right. right. <laughs> well, Molly, let me ask you this. I'll share with you what my students have said over the years. Um, so, so I've taught thousands of students. I, I teach this at Stanford. I teach this through Miss CEO. So, but what do you, what comes to mind for you? Like, why would you be nervous negotiating for more? Oh my gosh. Well, I'm always terrified, especially as sort of a freelance person that they're just going to be like, no, we're going to find someone else, which I mean, makes absolutely no sense when I actually like spell it out. But that's always my fear is that I'm asking somehow more than I'm worth which again, like I'm aware of what I'm saying as I'm saying it. I'm like, this is so silly, but it's terrifying. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is very much in line with what I'm hearing from my students. So I'm going to get punished somehow. The ultimate punishment is no or rejection or retraction of the offer. The retraction is the scary part. Like I could handle no all day. It's always the fear that like, they're going to be like, well, we're just going to go with someone else. And you're like, wait, why would they do that instead of just saying no first? Exactly. (laughs) It makes no sense. Exactly. And then I think there's a lot of confusion um, about our worth. Um, It goes in several ways. I'm too young. I'm too old. I don't have enough experience. I have too much experience. It, there's just a lot that we don't really have a handle of when it comes to our own market value. Um, I also see that privilege is an interesting concept. So some of my students at Stanford, for example, are like, you know what? I should just be grateful that I have a job. I should just be grateful that somebody wants me. Especially if it's a job that you even sort of want to be doing. So for me, you know, I get to write about biking and running and all of these things. So, you know, in the back of my head, there is that like, but you get to do this awesome job that you like doing. Like, wait, well, but why wouldn't I get paid for it? (laughs) Right. Absolutely. So there's a lot of different voices in our head. I remember when I started out in industry and my parents were so excited to hear about what I was going to be making because for them, that was such a big number. So I would, I got caught up in that like, Oh, good, good. This is more than enough. Obviously if, if my parents are excited about it. So what about the reverse though? What if you, this is my, maybe more my thing is my parents don't make a lot of money and I actually feel very stressed about the idea of making more than they've made. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, this idea of keeping ourselves small or whatever comes into play. And a lot of it can be tied to our upbringing and just complicated social dynamics and stereotypes. And it's, it's very, it's very complicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But as you said in the beginning, you know, we could, I mean, this could be years of therapy, but if we have a negotiation tomorrow, uh, how do we just like, do we have a snap way to get over this for that current uh, negotiation? Yes. 100%. <laughs> when people are in my class, I'm like, I'm not going to solve all of your life's problems, but let me give you a script. And it's sort of the combination of we're going to fake it till we make it. And it's really one of those things that look, you don't even have to be comfortable with the idea of negotiation. You don't, you can still be scared. In fact, there are many negotiations that I 
you know, have to deal with that I'm very nervous about. And this is a subject that I've been teaching for a decade, but I know I have to do it. I owe it to myself, you know, to ask for what I'm worth. So I try it. What can I control in that situation? I can control the preparation. I can control the content and how I deliver it if I practice enough. And then what happens happens, but at least there's no regrets that I didn't give up my own. So that's what I try to tell my students that the outcome from a class or a workshop with me is not that I'm going to solve all your anxieties when it comes to negotiations, but you will have the right tools and information to go into this conversation and confidence gets built over time. So the more you do it and you will just feel more comfortable with it. Okay, here's the deal. You want to take control of your health, of your life, but honestly, who has the time to go into the doctor, get the requisition for all the blood work, and then go to the lab and actually have that blood drawn, then wait weeks for the doctor to get back to you with the results? No, absolutely not. Inside Tracker is the way to go. And bonus, you can do it from the comfort of your own home with their mobile blood draw. It is so easy. Oh my gosh, so convenient, so safe, so reliable. All you have to do is when you order your Inside Tracker panel, you actually just add the mobile blood draw option and then boom, suddenly you have a lab tech at your house at a time that works for you to take your blood. We did this last month and honestly, it was the easiest experience I have ever had with blood draws in my life. So convenient. And then the turnaround on the results is so quick and instantly you get this whole view of what is going on inside you with all of the important biomarkers that you need as an athlete, as an entrepreneur, as a go-getter. So definitely, definitely check them out. Save time in your day, add time to your life with Inside Tracker's mobile blood draw. And if you visit insidetracker.com backslash feisty, you get 20% off today. That's insidetracker.com backslash feisty to get 20% off today. Okay, so I'm walking into a salary negotiation yes. with yes. with my boss. What yes. are sort of some of my like bullet point best practices? Absolutely. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you said bullet points because I try to simplify this. I think that what I see that doesn't work and it kind of ties back with all of those challenges and mental roadblocks that we have. So picture this, right? Molly, you're feeling uncomfortable, you're nervous, you have imposter syndrome, you're worried you're gonna damage the relationship with the other party, all of the fears, all of the fears, right? And that really doesn't set us up in the best way for the conversation. What happens, like you're, you're going into this meeting going, okay, Nita said I have to ask for more, I have to ask for more, and you go and you just kind of blurt it out, like boss or, you know, contractor or whoever you're working with, I need this. And it just comes out. It's a little abrupt. It's abrasive. It's the, you know what? I need a raise because my inflation, I'm worried about inflation or my rent is going up. And the other party's like, what? Like, I, this doesn't speak to me. I don't care. I have other things, right? Mm -hmm. I don't want to deal with it. And then you're thinking, see, I got punished for negotiating. I got punished for asking for more. It doesn't work for me. So I wanna reset all of that. The way that I've tried to simplify this is to identify four components of how you're gonna present this ask. And I hope that you'll find through these components that you can put something that's authentic to you and the needs that you're trying to achieve. But at the same time, it really brings the other party in so they feel like they are also invested in the same outcome that you, are, that you have. So what does that mean? So let's start with one, the setup, okay? So how are we gonna set up this conversation? Because Molly, you know when you're nervous about something, uh, you don't really, you're trying to think about how do I bring this up? And sometimes it can come out in the most awkward way possible. Like, Molly, uh, I, do, you have, do you have time tomorrow? Like, I need to talk to you about something. <laughs> and Molly, you're thinking like, uh, is Nita mad at me? What, what does she wanna say? Like, did I, did I piss her off? So all of those things are going through your head. So let's bring it up succinctly and to the point and straightforward, but at the same time, positive and confident that this is going to be a great conversation. So Molly, how are you doing? You know, thank you so much for being such a great advisor over the years. I would love to find time during our next one-on-one -on -one so we can talk a little bit about my career goals. I just had some questions for you, right? I'm kind of telling you, I really value you. I value our relationship, but at the same time, this is the theme. So there's no surprises. 
Okay. Now let's talk about how do we lead up to this ask that I have? Because I want to ask for more money. Or I want to ask for more resources or what that might look like. So I need to provide a little bit of context. So that's step two, provide some context or some background so you can kind of connect the dots for the other party. So for this example, let's say, you know, Molly, I've enjoyed working with you for the past three years. Um, you know, in that, you know, in that time, you know, we've achieved. And this leads into step number three, which is the specific data points. Um, and I like providing solid data and research before I present an ask, because again, we are trying to streamline this. We are trying to make it very clear to the other party why we're asking what we're asking and why there's a clear case for it. So I've enjoyed our time together working, you know, and it's been such a joy leading this product with you. Um, specifically, I'm really proud of the fact that we were able to bring in, you know, X dollars of sales last year. We were able to increase our customers by, you know, 20%. And we've collected over, you know, 20 amazing testimonials from these top accounts. Okay. I'm not giving you an essay. This is a conversation. These are just some of the highlights but it's to kind of warm you up and get you excited. Now it's time for the ask, step four. So based on what we've done, I'm really looking forward to what we can do in 2023. I would love to continue growing the team um, so that we can leverage the successes of last year and continue to grow this product line by 20%. In order to do so, um, I would love your thoughts on maybe Maybe, and this is the ask now, maybe looking at my title, um, increasing my compensation so that it's in line with my level of responsibilities, or maybe there's a resource ask. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you end it, you end that beautiful, succinct script, that positive win-win tone script with what are your thoughts? Okay. That's, that's how I would navigate a professional negotiation. It's a little bit more delicate, as you can imagine, Molly, compared to going to buy a new car or going to the market and like haggling over the price, because this is very much based on your reputation, relationships, um, building things for the future. And I want to take that all into account. Mm -hmm. I love that. Now, you know, I love the the list of things that you've you've done for the company or done with the company, really proving your value. But here's my like, it's not a pushback, but just kind of like question mark is like, so for for me, for example, you know, some of the companies I work with, I've written the articles they've asked, they've been turned in on deadline. Like there's no metrics that I have access to necessarily, but it's like they've, you know, I've done what they've asked. We've like had this back and forth relationship it's been going on for say, you know, four years, like at still like the same rate. So in that case, what would your phrasing be when it's like, there's nothing super tangible as far as like, we haven't increased something by 20% or maybe we have, I just don't know. Um, but you've, and I think a lot of people are in this, you've done your job, you've done the good job, but you don't necessarily have like the really specific metrics. How would you kind of um, massage what I just said into, into that same kind of format. Yeah, no, that's key. And that's, I think quantifying our efforts is extremely important. And a lot of us don't know how to do it, not because it's a difficult task, but maybe the people that we work for don't even demand it or they get away with not quantifying it. And this is how they kind of justify keeping you at a certain level. So let's think about how do we quantify our work? Because I think that's really important for all women um, who are doing really important work out there to understand what their value is. And the other part, Molly, that you bring up is, is around market value. Like, how do you know what your market value is? Because just because company X is paying you a certain amount, that does that determine your market value? No. So there's a lot of different variables and, and data points that go into your market value. So I'd like to start with the first one, which is how do you quantify and qualify your work? Um, I'm a big fan of some sort of dashboard, maintaining some sort of dashboard. And whether somebody has that in place for me or not, it can be as simple as an Excel sheet or a Google sheet where you literally have your tasks or your projects 
listed. And then what are the key metrics of success associated with each one? And I know for you, it may require some creative work, especially if the data is not available for you. Like for example, maybe you don't know what the click-through rates or the views of the articles are, but you do know about, look, I've turned these all in within this many days or this time. Like I'm a reliable contributor for this company. Um, I've talked about like these different topics, like number of topics that are of, maybe there's external data points that feed into the relevance and significance of those topics. Maybe the people that you've interviewed or wrote about have said really nice things to you, or you've gotten amazing testimonials based on the work that you've done with them. So those are just some things that come to mind that I would try to capture to show them that like, look, I'm a valuable contributor here and you want to hold on to me because I'm not easy to replace. So I would start there. And if you have any allies um, in these companies that can provide you with any other meaningful data points, I mean, a great place to start is, you know, how do I, what are, what are my metrics of success for this project or task and having them tell you what they are. And if you can't figure out what those numbers are, ask them, how do I get access to that to know if I'm, I'm doing a good job? Because, you know, performance and quality are important to me and doesn't want to hear that. So I, I like to kind of figure out what that story looks like. So that way, when you have those sync ups or conversations around compensation and negotiation, you have that data for ready to show and talk about. I love that. And I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this are in sort of more of that like coaching or like, you know, teaching classes or stuff like that. And that I think is where, you know, testimonials and full classes and stuff like that is so important to keep track of. Yes. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's fantastic. And there's, I, always I think- a num- there's always something you could pull, right? With mm-hmm. number of people, number of, um, you know, minutes, like you've done this, hours you've done this, um, the time it took you, the turnaround times for certain tasks. So it's not necessarily like one kind of data that I'm interested in. It's really anything that speaks to the high quality nature of your work that you think is is compelling. Mm-hmm. It's funny. I've been hearing this a lot lately, this concept of even writing down like a daily win. And I actually think this could be really helpful, even, even if you don't end up using all of these in this dashboard that we should be revisiting, probably I'd say at least monthly. This is not the kind of thing that you want to be like putting together the day before your negotiation. It's not the day to start pulling these metrics. We want to be kind of pulling these on like a rolling basis. But I actually really love the idea of like every night, just writing down like one win from the day. And I feel like that actually starts getting you at least in the like this headspace of thinking, I do have this. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's very validating to look at a dashboard, especially if you're impacting your work as we all should. Um, It's very clarifying too, because sometimes you realize, wow, there's a lot of things I do that are really just busy work or leading to nowhere. And we do it because we're operating on autopilot. And so maybe if we concentrated our efforts on the high priority stuff or the things that are really leading to the bigger outcomes, that would be a better use of our time and our skill set. So it's a, it's tra- it's a clarity. It's a, it's an exercise that I use for clarity. It brings transparency to what you you do. And I think even as a you know third party or, or you know your independent sort of consultant or contractor situation, I think a lot of companies and organizations really value people like that who can bring the data and and help them be like, look, I can justify this. I can make a business case for working with Molly. It's so easy and seamless and we want to keep her around. She's the type of person that just makes it easy for all of us. Darn right I am. Yes. <laughs> Love Molly. I will negotiate for you on your behalf. All say, you're hired. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. So way back, you had kind of mentioned the not barging in and just saying, I need a raise because, you know, inflation, recession, any of these number of things. But a lot of people are thinking right now, oh crap, I need a raise because eggs are now a billion dollars and I like eating eggs. Um So I think maybe, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, I think maybe the thing is, it's not that you can't have this need. It's just that in order to get to this place where you're actually going to get that raise, you do need to come in with all of the other pieces of the puzzle. Um, Because most managers, they have a lot going on. Like, it's a lot easier to make the case for making, you know, giving you the raise if you've actually presented a compelling argument for why you 
deserve that raise, which I mean, we can argue, like, let's be honest, most Americans probably deserve a raise at this point, but that's just not the way the world works. So (laughs) it is tricky, right? Because I'm like, on one hand, I'm like, but everyone does need a raise for inflation, but that's not going to be the the thing that gets you the raise, unfortunately. It can be completely valid why you need, we all need more money. Like we need to buy groceries. We need to afford rent. I get that. But it's just not an interesting or compelling enough reason for a business case, unfortunately. Um, I always think about it in, you know, one thing that helped me was thinking about how somebody would have to make a case on my behalf. So what is the information that I need to provide my boss or somebody that I'm working with so that they can go up to senior leadership and say, you know, Nita needs this new title or this raise. And the reason is, is because if we pay her more or we give her a promotion, she will be able to, you know, do more with that for the whole organization. It's a huge win. It's a huge value add. She has the commitment and the dedication um, to help us all win. And so that's the case that usually makes things happen when it comes to money and in professional negotiations, not the, oh, I feel so bad for Nita. She has like all these kids and she has to feed them. I mean, yes, that's a sad story, but like people cannot do not operate that way in, in the America. Mm-hmm. And I like what you just said about the win-win concept, because you you talk about it uh, in, in one of your great little books that I've, I've read here. And I love the idea of kind of creating that win-win. But whenever I've heard it, I've always felt like it kind of, it almost required me to provide more value to get more money. And that's actually not what you're saying at all. You're just kind of showcasing like how you are helping this company win if you continue on the trajectory you're on versus saying like, oh, and I'll do like to go, you know, Charles Dickens Christmas Carol, like, and I'll do your laundry for half a pence more a week or whatever it was. That's right. That's right. I absolutely, this is a value conversation. It's not a transactional conversation. It's not, if you pay me X more, I'll do Y more tasks. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm very much about building a bigger case for more about this is attached to your value, your expertise, your skill set, and what you bring with that. And that's what we need to come back to when we come to the negotiation table and we are asking for more things. It is rooted in the fact that you have so much to give. And so while, so while, yes, I'm making a case that like, I want to continue doing more. I've been doing a lot of great things and I want to continue doing more. It is, it is somewhat reasonable that, for example, Molly, if you end up getting that promotion, you will be doing more. Yes, of course. Like you, you asked for more responsibility. You asked for, you know, they, they, that kind of goes hand in hand. But that being said, I think the, the thing that we need to be aware of, and I think people are waking up to it, especially now when you're seeing all these people getting laid off. It's a really tough market. People realize that companies are no longer rewarding people just for working hard, right? Just like people who are so loyal to their companies and they work really hard. And unfortunately they got a layoff notice just in the last few weeks. So what are companies looking for? They care about like people working on the right stuff, you know, on the strategic parts of the business. And I think that is a wake up call for all of us. So you may be really busy and you may look at your to-do list and be busy all day, but are you working on the right things? So when you're thinking about asking for things, maybe, you know, it's a combination of I need money, I need title, I need recognition, but it's also a conversation about, I need to be asking to work on the right stuff so I can really be um, in a, in a good position as, as, you know, I can have that job security and that recognition and that impact that I also want in my career. And it just goes back to that beginning where negotiation isn't just about money. There's so much else. And actually, uh, you know, in this current economy, you know, at the moment, I think a lot of people are going to come up against, there's just no budget for necessarily raises. So, you know, if we are going into negotiations, if salary is just kind of stuck where it's at, where else can we go with negotiations versus just canceling that meeting altogether? Because I feel like that's not the move you want to make. Absolutely. Absolutely. So look, I'm a big fan of 
if you think there's a correction that needs to be made, like let's try to make it the best way possible. But if there's not much people can do, then that's the data point that you have, right? Maybe their hands are tied and there's legitimate reasons why that's the case. And that's fine. I'm saying that I don't want you to have any regrets. Like you need to put a case out there. But that being said, there are a million things to think about in terms of setting it up the right way and laying the foundation for future growth. And you're absolutely right. So if if things are on, like on pause, you know, with the companies and organizations that you're working with, think about, okay, how can I make sure I'm taking the right steps now so that in six months time, in 12 months time, I will I will come out in a better, in a better position. Some of the things I like a lot are those strategic opportunities, like getting involved, asking for more, you know, to work on them, more visibility, um, to, you know, maybe present your updates in a strategic audience or crowd. Um, Sometimes people ask for like support, career development support, um, going to conferences or taking classes. I think an investment in yourself is always a brilliant idea. I also just think too, that being transparent about our goals and getting buy-in and alignment with our strategic decision makers in our life is important. So telling that person, look, I I want to just make it clear that, you know, I love everything we're doing here, but I'm hoping in the near future, I can be here. What do you think about that? And I would love for them to talk you through, yes, I think that's possible or no, and this is why, and this is what you need to show, or this is what you need to continue doing. I want that more transparent and I want that conversation more regular. That's how you set yourself up then for those next opportunities for growth. This is not a once a year conversation. Once again, this is not, oh, I only talk about it during performance review time, or I only talk about it when it's asked. No, this is a regular conversation because I want you to be ready for when things, they always do things, opportunities open up all the time, even in tough markets. And I want you to be ready. And I want people to think of you and you to be top of mind for that when it happens. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's huge. Um, Okay. So the, the other question I wanted to ask, as far as negotiations go, is there anything in a negotiation that generally works well for men, but we know generally doesn't go great for women? Uh, this, you know, certain body language, phrases, et cetera. I was just listening to a podcast and I'm blanking on what the, I'll have to find the research and put it in the show notes, but it was talking about uh, looking at a study where it was like, you had men in a room at work and they got a call, like they were supposed to be in like a team meeting. And it was like, you got a call that said like your kid was sick and you had to go get them. And if if it was a guy who either left or stayed, he was either a great dad or a great team player. And then when it was switched and it was a woman who got that call, she was either not a team player because she left or she was a bad mom because she stayed. So I feel like that that is just something I've been thinking about so much in the last like week. So I, it's making me think like negotiations are going to look different for men and women. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I look, it's a it's a fair question because we know that, um, for example, where it's gender stereotypical behavior around negotiations, there are there are different expectations. What does that mean? What does gender stereotypical behavior looks like? We, for example, we think that men are the breadwinners and therefore, as a result, it's kind of expected that they will demand more when it comes to pay. Mm-hmm. Whereas women, oh, you know, they, they do negotiate and ask for things, but they're doing it more holistically. Maybe they're thinking about like work-life balance types of questions, right? Or, right? Because that's more in line with their lifestyles if they're a working mom. So while that's true... I do want to say this, and I'm so glad you brought this up because I just did um, an interview not so long ago, and it was there was this guy that was interviewing me, and it was like a live audience online, and um, a woman asked me about you know what is my negotiation approach, and I talked about the same framework I shared with you, this collaborative outcomes approach, and so the show ended. And in the debrief, you know, the guy thanked me and said it was such a really, it was a great conversation. And then he said, you know, it's super interesting what you said about negotiation, because when I was working in industry, all I had to do was go to my boss and say, give me this, you know? And in fact, I think that, you know, it's wonderful to be direct. 
And I think that that's so interesting that women have to think about being collaborative and we have to soften our approach when we want things. And so I just, I, you know, I just smiled. <laughs> I was like, okay. You know, I was more smiling because I was grateful he was no longer working in industry, giving bad advice, but you know, whatever I couldn't, you know, I'm going to be a polite guest. And I said, you know, this is what I really believe, Molly. I do think while there are biases and stereotypes, of course, and this is not just men versus women. This is women versus women as well. I, I do think that having this collaborative outcomes approach will take everybody far, this win-win approach. Mm-hmm. You can imagine like, yes, you may look at a man who goes in there and does the fist pounding. I want this, give me this. How, like, how is that going to serve him in the long run? right? He may get away with it once or twice, but soon people will be tired of that. And they are not going to want to reward that kind of behavior. It sets a horrible precedent for the organization. It's hard to justify and defend. Um, And honestly, it's it's just really hard to build a case and momentum around it and preserve the relationships that you need to. So I actually, I am, I, whether or not you want to customize this approach, for example, if you're like best friends with your boss, maybe you don't have to be so descriptive when it comes to the data and the context and the setup. But I do think that we owe anybody that we're asking anything, let's just a firm reasoning as to why and why this is good for everyone. Like, I think that's a beautiful thing about negotiation. It really requires us to be creative, collaborative, come together. And I think those are the ultimate, the ultimate wins. Yeah. And I mean, I think to me, that approach sets you up so much better for, you know, 10 years from now, because there is that, I forget the the principle that you like get promoted to the point at which you're incompetent. And that's, I think, mainly because of like the fist pounding, give me more money, give me more titles without the like, let's talk about what this trajectory is going to look like and how I'm going to like get the education or the tools that I need to rise to this level and actually be extremely competent at it. So I think, you know, that approach, I don't really feel like you get any of the the skills that you need to actually be advancing. Right. And it's just leadership skills at the end of the day. Like if you want, it's about your career and other people's career and being a real value add and being a person that people actually want to work with, <laughs> not mm-hmm. because they have to. So it's a, it's a whole host of reasons. Um, so yeah, I, I actually while it may seem that that it's different and people some people can get away with um different behaviors i just don't think it it's sustainable and i don't think it gets rewarded like consistently over time mhm yeah and so all of this is very much you know, it's, it's corporate to an extent. It's also, you could be talking to your boss at your small business, or in, you know, my case, a lot of this applies to talking to my bosses at magazines or wherever I'm writing. But I also think this is an important conversation for even the people who are coaches and, you know, they're, they're solopreneurs that are setting their own prices. Because I think all of the stuff that we talked about is actually, you when you're like setting a price as a coach, say you're a triathlon coach or something, you're almost actually negotiating with yourself in a very weird way because you actually have to have all of that like data in your dashboard about why as a coach you need to raise your prices whether it's to convince yourself or to you know if you get asked by a client you know why is your price set to this you actually have that answer so i think you know anyone listening who's thinking like oh this doesn't apply to me cuz i don't work a you know traditional corporate 9 to 5 it absolutely does. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so there's this concept that I, I feel like we all should, I mean, this number or this value or this range that we all should have, whether you work in a company or you have your own business and it's this market value. What is your market value? And, um, you know, there's a combination of different data points that go into your market value. So it could be your current rate or salary, Um, So what's the highest rate that you've charged, for example? Mm -hmm. Um, It could be your years of experience in your particular industry. Your what is the value of your expertise and your skills? Like what are similar people being made or getting paid for that? Um, How substitutable you are, maybe competing offers. So it's a combination of various data points like that. And it's up to you to kind of stitch it together to figure out what should be your range. Where, Where do you... Where should you be asking or demanding? And a lot of us don't update it. A lot of us don't even, (laughs) or we let other people dictate it based on like one data point by one person. 
Um, I find, as you can probably imagine, that going out and continuing to emphasize what your value and results are increases some of these numbers tremendously. Mm -hmm. I I think nothing boosts your confidence more than the person that bid the highest for your services and you using that number as sort of your leading, (laughs) you know, like I did get paid this much. So I know I'm worth that much at the very least than starting from there. So. 100%. Although I think I would argue most women actually would default to, uh, you know, that like you can get 800 really positive comments and then one negative one. And that one negative one's the one that sticks with you. I guarantee every, every woman who's listening to this, who's a coach or has like set their own rates. The second one person said, Ooh, that's too expensive. Immediately. That's what stuck in their head. And that's their story. And that's okay. And I, I've been there and I know what you're talking about, both because when I teach my classes, it's like that one student comment that throws me off or, you know, I do, I do teach and I do speak at different companies. So I, I also have a speaking rate. And here's, here's the thing. I, I think I've put together sort of um, a way to evaluate whether it's worth pursuing. And I think we all should kind of figure out what our process is in terms of, of figuring out, should I pursue it? So if the engagement, like, let's say it's less than your rate, what are you going to get out of it? Is this a meaningful and valuable and strategic relationship that you want? Is this a client, like a a client that will look really good on your portfolio or your resume? Do you need, like, are there other things that could lead to? Sometimes I've done things almost free because it led to really lucrative contracts and engagements down the line. Mm-hmm. So those are smart moves, in my opinion. I'm not thinking short term. I'm not thinking about how to just maximize that one contract. I'm thinking about five years out. Like, what could this lead to? Although I've definitely fallen into the trap of doing one too many of those things where I'm like, this will totally pay off later. Definitely a thing that's going to pay off later. Absolutely, it'll pay off. No, and I, I know. Like, and, and you have to update that. You kind of have to update your picture over and over again. Um, and then you find when you... F- when you find your rate that you feel good and it, look, there's some imposter syndrome there. Like I'm that much, I'm charging that much. Am I really that person who can charge that much? But guess what? Once one person pays you that you are that person, believe that somebody validated that that is real. So now it's about finding more people like that, mm-hmm. right? not the others, because we can't be everything for everyone. And we know that. There are some dream clients that we should probably be putting our energy towards and forgetting about the rest. And it's really a process about quality over quantity in terms of building the business of your dreams. And so I, I think it may feel, make you feel uncomfortable. <laughs> Nobody wants to say no to money, any, even if it's a little bit of money and it's not really your worth. But I think you don't want to dilute your worth at the same time with the wrong customers. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. So, so good. Uh, I could talk to you about this all day, but I want everyone to go follow you and follow along with everything you're doing at Miss CEO, because I know you have so much other online stuff that everyone should be checking out. Uh, So can you just share where everyone can find you, follow you, learn more, read more, see more, all the things? Yeah, of course. So we are, yeah. So we have Miss CEO, which is we're on Instagram and we're on Twitter and LinkedIn. And then if you go to MissCEO.org, you can sign up for our newsletter where you can hear about our upcoming events and workshops and programs that are targeted 12 and up. So there's something for everybody in terms of our programming, which is great. Um, and you can also follow me. I, I have uh, my, my name is Nita Sankashla and I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. I also, and I don't know if you'll share this in a little like with the link, but I also have a negotiation newsletter where I share best practices from time to time, answering questions exactly like yours, Molly. So like maybe once a month or so, um, things that come to mind, especially as I'm teaching these negotiation classes. And it's really for my students, my past and current and future students. And so that's advocate for more. And I'll give you a link so you can Ah. share. Perfect. That will definitely be in the show notes. Everyone should absolutely go get on that. I mean, it's one of those things, even just having that pop into your inbox every month and just kind of be that little like nudge to remind you that everything is a negotiation and to advocate for yourself, I think is like that alone, like forget the amazing content in it. Just having that show up there is 
so important. Oh my gosh. Nita, this has been so much fun as always. It's so great talking to you. I could honestly could do this all day. Let's yeah, no, if you have more questions, I would love to continue the conversation. It seems like we've only sort of touched the surface. There's so much to go into when it comes to negotiation, but I always love talking to you, Molly. Yes. We'll have to do a round two for sure. I think everyone is going to be obsessed with this episode. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Molly. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. I hope that episode was as helpful for you as it was for me. I made a million notes even as I was talking to Nita, if I'm being honest. And I think the big thing that came out of it for me, like I said in the intro, is that idea of market value and understanding it. And I see this a lot because I work in kind of a variety of industries, all kind of in the fitness space, but there are different pockets of it. And Honestly, it can feel like a bit of a roller coaster how market value changes, even when it's the exact same thing that I'm doing, how it changes for whether I'm working for a government organization that does sport stuff or for a smaller publication or a bigger publication. Uh, so, you know, for me, market value is a bit of a moving target, a bit of a roller coaster, but I think it's really worth reflecting on. And, you know, for me, it's it's asking some of the hard questions of, is this actually worth it? And as Nita pointed out, sometimes it is totally worth it. And, you know, you can do stuff for a little less money and that's fine. But, you know, sometimes I think learning how to say no and walk away is probably one of the biggest negotiation things that... Uh, I personally need to learn. I'm sure I'm not the only one. So if you loved this episode, definitely check out the show notes to get Nita's newsletters and follow her all over the internet. Uh, And definitely let me know if you had any other questions for her. We talked about maybe doing another episode that's more focused on that coaching solopreneur side of things, because obviously we, we barely scratched the surface of all of this negotiation and, uh, you know, business and women and all of that fun stuff. So please let me know what you think. If you love this episode, head over give us a rating review. That would be amazing. And thanks so much for tuning in. I will see you next week.